Would you please open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter. And as you turn, Luke chapter 1 will begin with verse 8. As you turn, let me read the very end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 is how the Old Testament ends. It says this, The prophet prophesies, Behold, says God, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And now we go to the Gospel of Luke and we find the Gospel beginning with an account of the fulfillment of this prophecy of the prophet Malachi. In Luke 1 verse 8 we read, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to to the Lord their God, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. This is the word of the Lord. So here we have the account of Luke. Now, Luke differs from the other gospel writers because Luke has a very, very tender solicitude towards women. And this kind of is no surprise when you think that he's a physician, that Luke is aware of the life of women and children. So the other gospel writers begin with John the Baptist's ministry, and Luke begins 
with the pregnancy of John the Baptist's mother, uh, Elizabeth. And we see the angel appearing to Elizabeth's husband, Zacharias, telling them that he and his wife are to be blessed by the birth of a son and that it will be a miraculous birth for two reasons. Number one, because we know that Zacharias and Elizabeth are unable to have children because Elizabeth is not able to have children. She's sterile. Her womb uh, does not take children. But also because at this point, after many years of disappointment, and we see that uh, they're too old to have children. So there are two things standing between uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth and the fulfillment of Zacharias's prayer that they would have children. Now, it does seem to be a strange beginning for the good news about Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one whose kingdom shall have no end. Because if you think about the way movers and shakers work today, you think that this is not at all the way anybody in America today would think that they could change the country. A number of years ago, when J. Gresham Machen was a professor at Princeton, um, there was a great controversy within the Presbyterian Church USA, what it is today, it wasn't called that at the time, the large mainline denomination, over the truth of Scripture, and specifically over Jesus Christ, whether there were many paths to salvation or one. And the controversy developed because hundreds of men who were pastors signed a document that said, basically, chill out, everyone. These doctrinal matters are not that important. We're all Christians. We're all going to heaven. It doesn't really matter what you believe. And so this is what was believed by many people in the denomination, and as this controversy developed, um, the time came when there was a splitting apart. And this splitting apart at the time uh, didn't seem to be uh, a small thing at all, but a very large thing. And so the controversy went to the meeting of the annual General Assembly. And the General Assembly is the label given to the national meeting of the pastors and elders in a Presbyterian tradition. So General Assembly happened, and uh, all of the people who believed in Scripture and who believed that Jesus Christ was the only way to the Father put their hope in the election of a moderator who was biblical. And isn't that the way we always do it? We think that if we can get a man up into the power, that then there will be reform and revival and everything will go well because we all know that a man in a position of power who's godly is going to change the world. Well, after seven years of President Bush, we all know what it is to put a Christian in power. And, and don't think I'm making a statement for Republicans or Democrats. I don't have my hope in any political parties, and I hope you don't either if you're a Christian. If you're not, you, that might be a good place to put your hope. But we don't have our hope in political parties, and we don't have our hope in putting somebody who professes faith in Christ in the White House, do we? Now, what is our hope? Our hope is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And so back at the time of Christ, the coming of Christ... 
we think of the, what we would have been like at the time, and what we would have been like at the time is we would have thought, you know, it is heinous to have the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor whooping up on us because we're the people of God, and this is absolutely humiliating. We shouldn't be under a foreign power. What we need is a military ruler, a zealot who's going to go out and he's going to fight against Rome and we're going to all rise up and we're going to get independence and then God will be able to work because we'll be able, as a Christian nation or a Jewish nation, as the people of God, we'll be able to do everything we need to do, right? Isn't that what you would have thought? Well, today, maybe instead of getting a president who's a Christian and a Republican... All right. Maybe we think, you know, what we need to do is have some great technological innovation that will allow the Bible to go out so that every person in their own language will understand it perfectly. We won't even have to have translators, just a tool, a computer to immediately do it and then like get everybody $100 laptops and they can all read the Bible. Right. That's how God will work. Right. Well, maybe not that. Maybe what we need is to come up with a business plan and we need to come up with some venture capital. And if that business plan and the venture capital comes on board and we're able to get the right board of directors and the right people working in the right jobs, we can make as much money as Bill Gates and then we can give all that money to missions. Right. And then the world will change. Right. And then we can do an IPO. Right. I mean, think of all the ways that we would think that we could build the kingdom of God. How many times have I heard men tell me, honestly, multiple times, they've said, you know, when I was younger, I believed that God was calling me to the pastoral ministry. And instead of going into the ministry, what I did was I went into business and thought, I can do so much better with business. I can have so much money to give the Lord. It's very seductive, isn't it? William Law, writing back in the 17th century, in a serious call to do about in holy life, talks about the idolatry of so many men who, under the guise of saying that they are faithful in providing for their family, have actually ended up having no thoughts of Jesus and God, and instead have thought their entire lives about money and about earning more. If we were to want to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, if we were to want to heal our land, you know that we would have at the center of our plan money. Now, if not money, then the military, maybe nuclear warheads. Because then you'd be secure because nobody would mess with you, right? Maybe Marines, lots and lots of Marines. Now, I could ask you to come up with suggestions. We could take half an hour coming up with suggestions. And I know one thing that you would never, ever suggest in all of the many ideas that we'd come up with here to heal our land. One thing you would never, ever suggest is that a sterile woman who is too old to have babies, married to a man who's too old to have babies, would have an angel appear to them and say, you're going to be pregnant. A baby is no solution to anything. What's a baby? A baby is an inconvenience. A baby is messy, both in the womb and out. A baby is powerless. A baby makes messes and 
places constant demands on its mother. A baby distorts a woman's body. A baby makes summer uncomfortable and winter uncomfortable. And a baby causes a father to break out in a cold sweat because he knows he's incompetent to be a father and a husband. Come on, be honest. We don't see a baby as being a solution to anything. I was telling the, the earlier service that last night, my wife threw a little party for me because I got a year older. I'm 54, if you want to know. And so there were a bunch of people over, and these people were disgustingly fecund, had lots of children. And so we're in our little living room, and I don't know how many kids there were in that little living room. I, and I said at some point, I counted them, how many was it? Fifteen? Fifteen, I counted them. And a number of them were playing soccer in the middle of the sofas. So the adults were trying to talk, the babies were crying, and Taylor and his, his troops were kicking the soccer ball. And at least three times I had to tell them to keep the kicks on the ground. Does anybody have any question why America stopped having children? You know, the, this, the people that weren't important in that living room were like me. It was my birthday, and I'll cry if I want to. And I didn't matter, because there was teeming life in that living room. And man, you look at that living room, and you look at, you know, the, 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 the carpet getting dirty, the ball smashing into the Christmas tree, and then everybody got up and wanted to play with a blowgun. And so as everybody's sitting around, we got these blowguns out, and we're shooting them into the stairway of carpets. And you know why people don't have children. Because adults become insignificant. And they spend their lives caring for their little ones. Every time I think of this, I think of Seinfeld. What a perfect expression of America. Perfect. Where a bunch of adults who are unencumbered by marriage or children, sit down in an apartment and talk to each other. Can you imagine if there were 15 children in that apartment? I mean, it's ludicrous. Because you couldn't hear what the funny people said. And really, the children are much funnier. I'm trying to get us to realize the degree to which pregnancy... Marriage, motherhood and fatherhood has vanished from America today. We would never consider that the way of healing our land is that a sterile woman who's too old to have children would get pregnant. It's just so organic, you know, so bloody. And this is how God worked. God appeared to Zacharias and said, you're going to have a baby. Now, it's very interesting that when he said, you're going to have a baby, you and your wife, that the Bible tells us something about this man and his wife that we would like to pass over, those of us who are reform believers, 
those of us who emphasize the sovereignty and providence of God and his grace, he says in verse 6 about Zacharias and his wife, they were both what? Righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. In Presbyterian churches around the country, that would be read and there would be no comment made on it. Or if a comment was made about it, what would be said is, now, of course, the righteousness and blamelessness being referred to here is their faith in God's provision and in the Messiah. But that's not what it says. What it says is that they lived holy, obedient, pious lives. There's a certain strain of the church today that speaks negatively in a dismissive way about piety. Well, you know, piety is vastly overrated. We all know that we're sinners and we only survive by grace. So forget holiness, forget obedience. You can never be good enough anyhow. And it's all of grace. And so you just walk roughshod over this verse and forget that it exists found it very interesting as I prepared to preach to read Calvin, supposedly one of the original Reformed men. And Calvin says, now listen, if you're tempted to pass over this verse and to say that the only righteousness being spoken of here is the righteousness of faith, you're wrong. (laughs) This is speaking of obedience, holiness, and piety. So Calvin knows how those of us who believe in the centrality of God's grace and in faith are going to be tending to denigrate and to dismiss and to not emphasize obedience. But let's note here that Zacharias and Elizabeth are said to be holy. They're said to be blameless. Now, what then happens? His prayers are heard, their prayers are heard, the angel tells them they're going to have a child, they're holy and they're blameless, and immediately when Zacharias is told that they're going to have a child, what does Zacharias do? Immediately he shows he's not blameless. Because immediately he doesn't believe. Did you notice that? What does he say? It says... In verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And you might say, well, that's not a failure. That's not a sin. I say, if it's not a failure or a sin, why does the angel immediately rebuke him? Because look at what the angel says. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. Can you feel that, people? This isn't a movie. And if you're in front of Gabriel, you're not thinking, hey, this is kind of like in a movie. This is the angel of God in all his strength and power and glory. And he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when the, and until... The day when these things take place, because why? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So we know he failed. He was blameless. He wasn't blameless. So, yes, 
We are saved by grace and obedience matters. All right? Yes, he was blameless and his mouth was closed until this child was born because he didn't believe. You think about that. You think about Zacharias and Elizabeth. They have all kinds of reasons to be bitter against God, don't they? Huh? Think about it. You know, they got married, high hopes of having children. God dashes their hopes in a time that was pronatal. They don't have children. They go through their entire lives mourning the fact that they live with a living reproach, with people saying, aha, 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 about them. People blaming them, people not treating them seriously, people being dismissive because they don't have children. Very opposite of today. The people that are treated dismissively today are those with children. The people that don't have children are the ones that are the real cool dudes, right? But back then, no. They were under reproach. This is the word that they use, all right? It's there in the text. And so they go through their entire life. They have many reasons to be bitter, but they're not bitter, are they? Because the Bible says that they're holy and blameless. That they live by faith. And that they were obedient by faith, right? And so then an angel appears to them. Your prayers have been heard, and you're going to have a baby. And at that moment... Zechariah says, impossible. He's been praying for it. He has not been bitter. And at that moment, he shows what all this godliness his whole life has been leading up to, right? Impossible. Well, what were you just praying about? Well, yeah, I mean, everybody hopes for the impossible, but it's impossible. An angel appears to him, impossible. (laughs) And that's about as good as we'll ever do, isn't it? You understand what I'm saying? That the holy and blameless one in our midst, when the angel says you're going to get your prayer, impossible. (laughs) Dear Jesus, please forgive me for yelling at my son and for treating him unkindly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Your sins are forgiven. Impossible. Dear Jesus, fill my son's heart with faith so that he will believe in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Impossible. That's why the Bible says that our best works of righteousness are like filthy rags. The most blameless man and his wife, holy and blameless, Impossible. How could she be pregnant? We're too old. She's sterile. It can't happen. And so God appears to Zechariah and Elizabeth. God says they're going to have a baby. And that this baby will be the fulfillment of Elijah, who will be preparing the way of the Lord. And what we see here is that God is not in the habit of doing things the way we are. One of the great tragedies of the 20th century is the degree to which evangelicals have turned away from the power of the Holy Spirit to the power of marketing. And everything we've done, we think that we have to help the Holy Spirit, because he's just not quite powerful enough to do what God desires. 
And so Billy Graham goes into London and thinks he's got to get a bunch of pagans and Roman Catholic priests up on the platform with him if God's really going to work in London. Young Life goes out into the high schools around the country and thinks they've got to get the, the football captain, the quarterbacks, and, you know, the point guards, and the, the cheerleaders, and the valedictorians, and the national merit scholars. Are, God just won't be able to work. God has to have dignity in his, in his converts. And so it's been a part of... You know, InterVarsity gets the intellectuals, Campus Crusade gets the frat and sorority people, and Young Life gets the football captain. Because God has to have dignified and good-looking and, and, and the best jocks, you know? And churches. Churches have to have the best locations, you know, out on the east side at the goat farm. What a beautiful place set among the rich people of Bloomington, you know. And certainly the, the building ought to be worthy of the God that we worship. <laughs> well, it is because of your hearts, but not because you can see the welding plates, you know. But then you look at the cathedrals of the Middle Ages. What are they today? They're all museums. Apparently, God doesn't have to dwell in temples made by human hands. <laughs> and you should know I'm quoting scripture. And so we need to see that a baby in the womb, you can't very well establish the agency of a baby in a womb, can you? Well, he was present among us in power. <laughs> what, did he yell through the membranes? Did he read scripture? Did he preach? Did he sing a beautiful song? A baby can't do that. And you know what is interesting is that God chose to prepare the way of the Lord by sending an announcement of a baby. And this is God's habit in scripture. Have you ever thought about it? How often God's solution to a problem is a pregnancy that's impossible? Have you ever thought about that? Think, category of scripture, problem, God providing a solution, solution being a pregnancy that's impossible. Now, what would you come up as your exhibits? What would your exhibits be? Come on. Come on. Your dad's taught you well. Come on. Okay, she starts well. We're off and running. Abraham and Sarai. Because she was old and he was old. And both of them laughed. Impossible. And God says, I'm going to make of you a nation. And this woman, not your servant girl, this woman. And so Isaac is born. All right? And out of Isaac, a people without number, more than the sands of the sea, more than the stars of the sky. Of that woman and that man who were, what does the Bible say about them? As good as dead. <laughs> Not in their prime fertile years, right? Okay, who's the next one in the exhibit? 
Anybody want to call out? Yep, Rebecca. Actually, Rachel. After many years of childlessness, watching her servant girl and Leah present her husband Jacob with many children, we read of the miraculous gift of baby Joseph to Rachel. Joseph was to save God's people from what? From the famine. By taking them down to Egypt. All right? A great rescue. In Genesis 30, we're told, Then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. All right? So she conceived and bore a son, and she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. Then third, when the sons of Israel were in bondage to the Philistines, wasting away under their oppression, God determined to rescue his people from their bondage, and he began this major venture by giving a baby son named Samson to Manoah and his barren wife. In Judges chapter 13, we read about Manoah. It says his wife was what? Barren. And had borne no children, and then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And the Bible tells us in verse 24, Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. Fourth, when the sons of Israel were in bondage to the Egyptians, wasting away under Pharaoh's cruel oppression, God determined to rescue his people from their bondage, and he began the great exodus. How? By having a Levite couple give birth to a baby, Moses. And you say, well, then this doesn't fit the type, because they were fertile. And so it's not a case of an infertile couple having a child. Well, it does fit the case, because when that baby was born, that baby was born under a sentence of death. But God rescued that child. Because what we read is that when his mother gave birth, it says the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. And then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the river Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying and she had pity on him. And said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. All right. Next, fifth, when the people of God were in need of a judge to lead them, a man who would not pervert their worship and their daughters, but be faithful to the Lord their God and bring them his blessing. Again, the Lord brought a baby to the womb of a woman. Quite miraculously, baby Samuel was conceived and born to Elkanah and his beloved wife, Hannah. 
And so you see that the ways of God are not our ways. God is interested in showing that his thoughts aren't our thoughts. And God is in the business of dignifying the womb of a woman. There is nothing shameful about diapers. The only thing shameful about them is the husband is too proud to change them. And the woman who considers it beneath her to care for her children, that's shameful. The ways of God are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We set out to accomplish a task by marshalling earthly forces, banknotes, armies, missiles, but God has a mother give birth to a baby. He places a child in the womb of a mother, making it clear that salvation is not of man, but of God. As the Old Testament records for God's people the miraculous gift of life of Isaac, Joseph, Moses, Samson, and Samuel, so the New Testament begins with the account of the miraculous gift of life to John the Baptist and to Jesus, born of a virgin. But there's more here. We're not only told that God places a baby in the womb of a mother, but we're also told something very significant about that baby in the womb. Speaking to Zacharias about the child he and his wife Elizabeth are about to receive, the angel says this concerning this child. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Now, some of you might have a new international version, and you might have read here that it says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. What's the difference between the Bible saying from the womb and from birth? Here's the Greek word. In other words, in the original text, what's the Greek? And it's simple. I'll, I'll give you the word, and you'll know what the text means. The word says koilia. That's the Greek. Now, what is koilia? If we're talking about guts, do you know what koilia is? Guts, Right? You know, in the locker room, that's what we refer to it. He's got guts. He's got, you know, subsoil rooted, deeply rooted. He's got strength. And so what is being referred to here is the interior of a woman's body, coelia. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from coelia. And you know, if you go through the Bible, you see this construction again and again and again. For instance, the Hebrew of the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. When they translated it into Greek, listen to some of the places they use this Greek word koile. In Judges 13, For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Koilea. Judges 16, I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb, not from birth, from womb, koilia. Psalm 22, 9 and 10, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast, well, that would be outside the womb. Upon you I was cast from birth, that's the very moment of birth, and then it says, 
From the body of my mother, he named me. So, how about this? Isaiah 49.1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, coilia, from the body of my mother, he named me. Isaiah 49.5. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then Galatians 1.15. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace and now we come to Luke 141 when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting the baby John the Baptist leaped in her coilia in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit then verse 42 she cried aloud out with a loud voice and said blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your coilia your womb Luke 1.44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my coilia for joy. Luke 2.21, And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the coilia. Luke 11.27, Jesus was saying these things, and one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the coilia that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. Now, what is the application of this? I make it every Christmas. The application is that abortion is the murder of children made by God in his image. In the womb, they are lives. They are people. And to take those lives is murder. But the other application is, don't you ever, ever sell short the child in your wife's womb. That child in the womb is subject to the work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit doesn't have to wait till birth. We have such a tendency to make an overemphasis on our own agency and work. Do you understand that? And to think that God can't work with our children unless they're out of the womb and we're being faithful. No, God is in the habit of working while the child is in your womb. I'll never forget talking to Jill Crumb one time and her saying that she just loves to sit in a church pregnant so that her child can be under the preaching of the word. And I thought, woo. This is an excitable mother. (laughs) But I've often wondered about it since then. Do you realize that if you sing certain songs to a child in the womb, that when the child comes out of the womb, it already knows those songs? God healed the land through his son and the messenger was his little baby in the womb and that little baby began his work while he was in the womb because when Jesus came into his presence Jesus in Mary's womb when Mary came pregnant to Elizabeth pregnant when Jesus came to John the Baptist John the Baptist leaped in the womb for joy and then we think that babies don't matter inconveniences. No, they do matter because God is pleased to work in the wombs of mothers. Now, what does this have to say about us? 
Well, it really does show our insignificance. Because after all, it's men that matter, not women. Right? Oh, we all know this is true. I can arm wrestle my wife and beat her. And, and that's all that I need to say. Right? I mean, what more? I mean, really? That, that's it. Right? You agree. Yeah, we agree. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think I could probably arm wrestle any woman in here. And so it really is men that matter. But if I go to discipline one of my children and my wife just lets that right eyebrow just go up slightly as I discipline a child in her presence and any of her children see her eyebrow go up just slightly, it doesn't matter who wins in the arm wrestling, does it? I am impotent in the face of my wife's authority over her children. Because they were in her womb. Listen, it's God. And when God decides he's going to work, he works. And he's in the habit of sending children who are either to mothers that are incapable of having children, fathers as good as dead, or into Pharaoh's land who has given a decree that they're all to be killed. Into a land where abortion takes 1.3 million unborn children's lives a year. Into that land, a child of a single mother escaped the slaughter of Planned Parenthood. And one day that child was a prophet of God. And God brought revival on the land. Can't you write the story? I mean, come on. We've got them in Scripture. Can't we write the story of America? You really think Jerry Seinfeld's going to help us? No. It's going to be a baby. Born at a time when it should have been aborted. I'll end with this. I went with my wife at the kindness of the Crisis Pregnancy Center to their banquet a week or two ago. And Coach Hepner was the coach of football here, and he died of a tumor. And it was evident before he died and after he died that he was very loved by the men that played for him through the years, some of whom are in the NFL now. And that's about all I knew. Didn't know anything more. But then I saw that she was going to speak at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. And... So my wife and I went, and after the dinner, she got up and spoke. And it was a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful uh, testimony to Jesus Christ, everything she said. It's just beautiful. But you know, the most beautiful moment of her testimony was at the very end where she talked about how good God had been. And it wasn't just God, some cosmic God. It was Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And she gets to the end and she says, and so she says, God is in the habit of working through weakness. And she says, and I, you know, this is a paraphrase, but this is what she said. She said, because, you know, I forget how many years ago it was. It was like maybe 28 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, Terry, was that his first name? Terry, she said, Terry and his girlfriend got pregnant. And so they got married. And
And then look what God did. And this is God's habit. And I loved her. I loved her. She's lost her husband. And it was clear they loved each other. She gets done giving her testimony, and then she talks about an unwed mother who gets pregnant. And her boyfriend takes responsibility and becomes a man of God and is faithful to his wife and his children. And she says, this is God's habit. You say, well, what does that have to do with John the Baptist? Remember, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Listen. If the Spirit of God really goes out on this land, not the charade that evangelical Christianity is selling this land, but if the Spirit of God really goes out in this land, you know how you'll know it? Not by the conversion statistics given out by our parachurch organizations, but because husbands will love their wives and love their children, and the children's hearts will be owned by their fathers. And that will be real Christianity. And nobody would consider killing their unborn children at Planned Parenthood. And there won't be any special needs children needing adoption because the parents that had them will keep them. This is godliness. We tend to minimize Joseph and Mary and Zacharias and Elizabeth at the time of Christmas because everybody's about the baby Jesus. And it is all about Jesus. But in Inevitably, without fail, when faith is in Jesus Christ, it causes us to give ourselves to pregnancy, to give ourselves to being women and men, fathers and mothers, to love our children, for children to love their parents into old age, for Hannah to be home with Annie Lane this morning so Mary Lee can be here. Come on. That's godliness. Right? And that's what we're going to be, right? Huh? Willing to have a baby? Not you men. We don't do that. (laughs) Although soon it will be possible. Mark my words. Let's pray.